This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Our speaker is Ian Waddell, QC. Uh, He wrote a memoir, Take the Torch, is a compelling memoir from one of BC's most widely accomplished and animated politicians, Ian Waddell, QC. Waddell takes us on a journey through his life and career as a storefront lawyer, an NDP member of parliament, a minister of culture, a writer, a teacher, a film producer, and more, delivering a smart, humorous, endearing, and impossible-to-forget exploration of public life. Now, that's what you'll get when you read the book, right? (laughs) So today is going to be a little bit different. Please welcome Ian Waddell to our meeting. Thank you. Hi. Good morning. I'm sorry, I'm a little... uh What's the word? Discombobulated. That's a big word. I, I, I um, just got back from Mexico last night. It was pretty nice. And I just finished a national tour with my, with my new book, uh, Take the Torch. And uh, um, during the tour, I was, in, I was in Ottawa. And I did an interview with, with Peter Van Dusen, uh, that's CPAC. And it, it's kind of a, I thought we'd start with that interview. You could look at it. It describes the book. And then I want to come back and I want, I want to talk about... You'll see in the interview, I, I say that we're going through a revolution right now in Canada in terms of Aboriginal matters. And, and uh, I want to talk about that today a little bit and give you a little bit of background and, and how it happened. And it's in the news everywhere, and it's really some of the stuff behind And it's long overdue, in my view, but we'll see. Okay, I brought Section 35 along. That's, uh, this was my original draft uh, right here, and uh, I managed to find it. And I'll tell you the story in a minute, but let, let's, can you just, we'll just stick it here somewhere. And um, uh, I, I want to speak a little bit about it and what came, I'll tell you about the queen and the kilt in a minute, okay? <laughs> um, anyway, um, I, uh, let me, let me, let me go back. Can we, yeah, you just leave, you can, yeah, you can pass it around if you like. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's careful. Just leave it there, and they can see it later. I think that I think that's the easiest thing. But let let, let me go back. So how did we get to Section 35? And I and it, it's got to do with Berger, who was really my mentor. And uh, what happened was it was let, let's go back to about 19 in the early 70s uh, or late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Tom Berger was was uh, actually in the 60s. Tom Berger worked for a lawyer called uh, Tom Hurley. Tom Hurley was a crazy Irishman, a bit of an alcoholic, and he had a single practice in the North Shore. And he had, his wife was Maisie, and she was an English woman, and she carried a, she walked with a stick, and she would bang her stick, and she was completely committed with her, her, her Aboriginal women friends to, to taking their cause, and she would get cases for Tom to take, Tom Hurley to take. And, and uh, uh, she, would, <laughs> she was passionate about this. And one day, um, Tom Berger, who was a Scandinavian, uh, rational, quiet guy, and Tom Hurley, this crazy Irishman, a bit of an alcoholic, they went to the library, quote, the library, which was basically the pub, and, and they came back, and Maisie was not happy. She took a case, and Tom said, oh, another Indian case. And she said, you know, Tom, do you know, to her husband, you know, the Indians 
Oh, they've never given up this country. The Royal Proclamation, 1763. The Royal Proclamation of 17. <laughs> so Berger, being this very rational guy, a young law student, looked up the Royal Proclamation where King George had said to the colonists, well, you've got to deal with native people as nations, as people. You know? And the, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 is the law of Canada, by the way. Uh, it goes back that far. We have British common law. And so, so she, she mentioned that. Anyway, Tom Hurley died, and uh, uh, Macy Hurley asked that Tom Berger take this case. White and Bob, it was called. A couple of native guys were in, over in Nanaimo or Parksville or something were, were um, hunt, hunted out of season, and they were charged under the provincial gaming law. And their they, Tom Berger defended them. And he went over to Nanaimo, and he told me the story. He went over to Nanaimo, and he was in court, and he was trying to prove that Governor Douglas at the day had a kind of a treaty to allow them rights. And, and it was, there was a lot of blank things on it and, and all that. And so Tom, put the, Tom Berger put the argument in, and the provincial court judge said, well, uh, what else? And the Crown Council said, well, uh, that's not sufficient. And the judge said, have you got anything else, Mr. Berger? He said, well, there's the Royal Proclamation of 1763. <laughs> And there's Aboriginal title and rights that have not been extinguished and it's still part of the law of Canada. So the judge overruled that and, uh, and anyway, but gave a light sentence and, and Tom went home to his law practice and the phone started ringing the next afternoon. People were kind of laughing. Read the province newspaper. Province, Lawyer says Indians own British Columbia, right? <laughs> wow. And so he, he got a number of phone calls left and then he got a phone call from from Northern British Columbia, from Frank Calder. It's funny how, I can, you know, coincidences in life can happen. It happened to all our lives. <laughs> our lives. And, and Frank Calder, who was called the little chief of the Nishias, phoned Tom Berger and he said, Mr. Berger, you got it right. We've been saying that for 100 years. So Berger took a case, and the case was called um, uh, Calder against the Attorney General. And Calder uh, and he took the case and he argued that the Nishas had Aboriginal rights. He lost in the, in the Supreme Court of British Appeal, the Court of Appeal, he lost. This is about 1970. And he lost, and then he went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And three judges, and the great judges, the, in my view, Laskin, who was my old law professor, uh, Hall, who was a conservative appointment of Diefenbaker, who, who recommended Medicare from Saskatchewan, and uh, uh, Spence, who was a great criminal lawyer. Those three judges said there are Aboriginal rights. Three said there's not, and one said, I'm throwing it out on a technicality. So they didn't win the case. Berger comes, comes back from Ottawa. He's in Toronto. Uh, he's having lunch, dinner with some friends of mine, and the phone rang, and it was John Turner, who was then the Justice Minister, and he appointed Tom Berger to the Supreme Court of of, of um, not the Supreme, the Supreme Court of British Columbia. So Berger became a judge. So John Berger is now a judge of the, uh, this court. And, and in 1972 to 74, was a minority liberal government. Trudeau won big in 68, and then he, he reduced to a minority. And watch this, because I think this could happen next federal election with Trudeau too, you know? So there was a minority government dependent on the NDP. And, uh, and I pretty well, Tom, Tommy Douglas and David Lewis ran the country for two years. And, and they appointed, at that time, they had this big project that I described in the video. And, and they appointed the judge, 
to do a, a, a to do a, what do you call it now, a, 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 an inquiry. And I got to know him because I was a storefront lawyer and I had done the first class action that's in the book in Canada. I'd done the first class action, I'd done it. And I was on this, helping him on the Family Law Commission and I went into his office and they had this big stack of things and reports. He said, remember, this was going to be the biggest construction, private construction project in the history of the world. And, and I said, what, what, I want you to be my assistant. Well, when do I start? You go to Yellowknife tomorrow. And I had the most wonderful two years of my life. You know, I'm traveling uh, with Berger, looking at uh, looking at the, 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 the you know the the um, uh, the situation uh, in the north and, and what it was like. And it was really a lesson for me. One of the things I most we gave a report, a, a number of things, and if you read it if you get a copy of the book, you'll read the chapter on that. A lot of things happened. One was nicely that. A lot of the Aboriginal people that came couldn't speak English. And of course, Southern Canadians saw that with the Brian. Oh, my God, this is, this is Canadian North for the first time. We, we are, as Berger said, a Northern country. We are a Northern people. But we don't really know. Look at the map. Look at it. And Canadians started to see this. This was before cable news and all that. You know, we were seeing, we were broadcasting from the North. And, but the kids of these older people, uh, would, would come forward. In the, I was 29, I think, or 29 or 30. The kids would come forward and speak for their parents. Their parents would speak, and then they would speak in English. And it produced the greatest generation of Aboriginal. Nellie Cornway in Inuit became Premier of the Northwest Territory. She was a young girl presenting for her, for, for her family. Uh, Steve Kakwe uh, became Premier of Northwest Territories. J Jim Antoine, a 28-year-old uh, 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 new chief from Fort Simpson, became uh, the head of, in later years, uh, George Erasmus came, did the big report on Aboriginal matters, uh, and it just kept going on and on. Uh, we got to see these people when they, I got to see them when they were very young. Um, the other thing was, when we went to Old Crow, I, I don't know, maybe I can, um, well, let me just describe it for you what happened. The judge, when we first got, a, first, when the judge was first appointed, uh, uh, I took him on a little tour. We went up, we flew on a June day up to, from Edmonton up to Yellowknife, and we got Yellowknife up to a Klavik, to Inuvik, Inuvik, and we got a jet helicopter. We flew over to a Klavik and then up the western side of the Great Mackenzie Delta, which flows into the Beaufort, Beaufort Sea, the Arctic Ocean. And we got, as a matter of fact, I have a picture. Berger and I were refueling at an old Juline station. And you look in the background and you see the ice. You don't see that today. You could actually see the ice cap. We were right there in the shore. The ice cap came right in to the to the shore. Anyway, we flew over the ice cap and we flew the north we flew along towards Alaska over over the British Mountains and the the the, the, the down just by the Arctic Ocean. And we saw the migrating caribou herd, which is one of the great wonders of the world. It's the last big herd one of the last big herds, certainly the only one in North in the Americas. And, and we saw that, we saw wolves and we saw bears. And we came back and we entered an old crow. And you, you'll see, you saw in the little clip there about officials coming in. When we landed in the airstrip of old crow, and it's just, there's a dirt road to the, no roads in old crow, even today. Just into the, into the, into the village, there's a, an RCMP guy came with a truck to give Burge a ride. And the chief, Chief John Joe Kay, and his, Alfred North, his band manager, came to greet us. And, and uh, 
the, the, the policeman said, well, I'll give you a ride, Judge. And I said, I'll walk in with, with Chief, you know? I'll walk in. And Bridgers was the son of an RCMP constable. And he said, we'll walk in. And we walked with the Chief. And I remember Bridger telling me a little bit in the as the helicopter was landing that uh, he had a bit of a sore stomach, you know, a little bit upset stomach. And uh, I said, well, I'll find you a place and so on. So the Chief said, Judge, would I'd like to invite you. My, my wife has cooked a caribou dinner. And I said, well, uh, you know, judge, judge, I'll certainly come to the dinner, right? You know, like, Bridger was there, and, and the next day Bridger promised him he would come back. We went back to see Muskratting there. We went back, and we held a, a whole week of hearings. We used to play. After the hearings, we'd go out in the midnight sun and play baseball. It was incredible. It was, it was really, but it was consultation in a real sense. We were consulting at, at these people. And one of the things I'm most proud of the, uh, of the he, Berger said a pipeline could be built, but it should not be built on the North Shore, not on that shore. To, and today, there, uh, there are two parks. Uh, there's one park that's managed by, uh, by um, the Inuit and Parks Canada, right on the coast. And the other park, which is near Old Crow, these are Indian people, not Inuit. Uh, there, uh, it's managed by the Denny and Parks Canada, two national parks, and they're part of a land claim settlement, and they're in the Constitution. So you can't, you're never going to be able to drill in there, you know. We pre and on the American side, President Trump just opened up drilling, you know. Uh, so it's a fight. We're going to still have to take that fight up, but for we should be proud that we've protected the porcupine caribou herd. Anyway, what happened after Berger? I went on to. Um, uh, uh, you know, I go to a law practice in Richmond for a couple of years, and I was thinking about, uh, I, I went up to, Nor and I talked about it in my introduction in the book, in the prologue, with a lawyer called Jack Woodward. And if you see on this, it says Woody. That was my assistant later in Ottawa when we drafted this. Woody and I, he was a big, big guy, and I'm just a little guy, and we were fishing with the chief. We went up to help him on some inquiry, railroad inquiry for the second year. And it was uh, 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 up near Willison Lake in his vi village. And we're out, we're out fishing in the river. And a big logging trucks are going through. And I said, Chief Harry, Harry Chinji, the second he, why, stop, you know, stop it. You know, you're the chief, this is your, Ian, I can't do anything, really, I can't do anything. And Jack and I said, we're going to change that. We're going to find a way to change And we got lucky. <laughs> Uh, at that night, we, we flew up Willison Lake. Willison Lake was, was this big lake that W.C. Bennett flooded, you know, for the Bennett Dam and all that. And, but hydro in those days, I mean, they didn't care. They didn't even log the thing. So trees were shooting up like missiles from the lake. And they, they actually killed some, some, some secondy people. And we went up there and saw the lake. And I remember we, that night, we all, we all came back. Uh, to town, to Mackenzie, the town, and we kind of celebrated. I don't know, I, I'm not a dope smoker, but I'm sure people see that there is a lot of things in the air and a lot of, and they were dancing. And I, Jim Fulton was with me, this great guy from Northern BC, and he said, look, I'm gonna run for a nomination to get into Parliament in 1970, this was 1978. And I said, well, I think I'll run for one in Vancouver Kingsway. And neither one of us thought we had a chance, and even if we won, we'd have to defeat two sitting liberal MPs that were very, you know, very well known. Well, Jim gets the nomination. My, my main opponent has a, for the NDP nomination, 
has a, a, a nervous breakdown, and I get the nomination. And then, thanks to, and you have to read about it in the book, I won't go into it here, but barbecued meats. Uh, I got a, a lot of support from Chinese Canadians because I supported uh, their, their cause about putting barbecued meats in the front of their stores, and my opponent didn't. And I won the election. And so suddenly I'm in Parliament. And you saw what happened uh, with the, in the film about the energy policy and so on. I was energy critic. But we then had, as I say, in the, we had the balance of power in a sense that Trudeau, he only had support from New Brunswick and Ontario. And he needed Western Canadian support to make his, 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 uh, his, his application or his, what he wanted to do was bring the Canadian Constitution back with a charter. And, and you know it was the British North America Act, an act of the British Parliament of 1867. We were not completely free, free country. We just came of age in 1982. Uh, so we had to bring that Constitution back. But nobody could, <laughs> once it was Britain, it was okay. You brought it back here, then you had to get some. How do you amend it? What's Quebec's role? Is Aboriginals in it? What about women? What about the charter? What about, not easy stuff. And there was a fight. You, you're, you're all young enough to remember. Uh, the constitutional fight, and it was an intense period, and it was really intense in Ottawa. And I remember uh, we had Kretchen in Broadbent's office, and we said, look, we, at first Broadbent agreed to the, to the and we had a rebellion of, of our caucus. And we said, Mr. Broadbent, you've got to go back and tell Pierre Trudeau that's not sufficient. We want more. And that's what we wanted, section. And we were in, 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 uh, in Broadbent's office at five, I think it's fifth floor of the Parliament buildings, and and uh, we 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 had Berger on the phone to Vancouver, and he said, "Make it broad, make the make the clause broad." And Jack Woodward, old Jack, my my fishing partner, was in Ottawa that day, and he was in my office late at night. He's the only one who could type, so he typed that out, and then I on the phone, and then I I printed it out, and you can see it's pretty well section 35, and and Kretchen went down to this joint committee. And the joint committee was, uh, was uh, uh, the Senate and House of Commons, and they were taking, they were making the final document that would go to the provinces, uh, and we'd pass it in Parliament, and then we'd take it to the provinces, and we'd come back, we'd pass it, and then we'd get the British, the British to pass it in the British House of Commons, and it would be done. So uh, we're 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 going down there, and there's a, a Métis guy called Harry Daniels. He was really colorful, had a big hat big rings on, you know, and he was sitting there, and he said, well, what about the Métis? Now, you know what the Métis are, you, you know, what the Métis, um, what about the Métis? Because they had a culture, and have a culture, Red River settlement in Winnipeg, and so on. So he said, so what about the Métis? So he grabs, literally, Cretchen by the, the lapel, <laughs> pulls him around, and Sven Robinson's there, takes his pen out, and says, Aboriginal means Indian, Inuit and Métis, <laughs> and they're in the Constitution, which is kind of an interesting way of making a Constitution. And anyway, that went through, it passed, and then it went to the provinces, and they took it out. Well, Berger wrote an op-ed piece for the Globe and Mail, and he lost his job for that. He, he basically was forced out of the bed. A judge is not supposed to be political, you know, and he lost his job. Uh, but sometimes you have to do those things. and and. And he said, you can't leave the first people out of the Constitution. They're part of it. So, and there was a huge groundswell of, um, a groundswell of, uh, 
uh, Aboriginal uh, lobby. They got a train, the Constitution Express went to Ottawa, there was all sorts of maneuverings. They were in London lobbying the MPs and so British MPs loved it. They were getting free dinners and free cocktails. Quebec always was great, you know, and Ottawa was there giving all these parties in, in, in England trying to lobby the British politicians. Anyway, to make the long story short, it came back to, to uh, the house, it came back uh, and <coughs> The, they were forced, the provinces, to put Aboriginal rights back in. And it was there, and, and, uh, uh, and it appeared in the Constitution. And, and I try to explain to friends who are not lawyers about, well, what does it matter? How does it matter? How does it? And there was a short example after it was put in, in 1982. And you've, how many of you have been to Tofino? Been to Tofino? Yeah, a lot. Well, they were going to log Mears Island which was beautiful, you know, the view from Tofino. And I was Minister of Tourism, so I was kind of interested in this. Uh, they're going to log Mears Island. But I wasn't minister at this time. And they, the province had given the logging company the rights to do it. And the environmentalists and the aboriginals, uh, the native band there, uh, teamed up and went to court to try and get an injunction. And the judge said in his decision, well, um, I reject the application of uh, the, the Sierra Club of British Columbia because the, 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 the developer has got the provincial permission. He's doing it properly. He's doing it. So no injunction. As to the aboriginals, well, they say they've got some rights and they still want to negotiate them. And they point to Section 35 of the Constitution. It's in the Constitution of Canada. Ooh. Well, the judge says, I'm going to give the injunction. Because if, if I let them cut it, then the horse is out of the barn, all the rights are gone. So we'll put it down to the trial down here. I'll give the injunction. And guess what? Never was logged. And we have that beautiful view. And so that's, you know, it, it, and it's developing as we speak. There have been about 300 cases. And I say it's not going to be easy. Um, once the Constitution, we, that night we passed it in the House of Commons. We all got together and sang Old Canada, and it was great. And afterwards, I'm going to tell so can I read about the queen and the kilt? I, uh, I, I'll, read you, <laughs> I'll read you what happened here. Um, and I was there with my, let me, okay. You give me a minute? I, I, okay. When you're an MP, you, when you're in politics, you, and it's not a bad profession, actually, if you, if you, to, you have to canvas. You go door to door. And I had to go door to door in four elections in, in, in Vancouver, Kingsway. And I, and I went to this door, and there was a woman called Irene Donegan. And Irene had a, she made kilts for the Vancouver, the Women's Pipe Band and the SFU Pipe Band. And uh, I was trying to get her support. And I said, gee, my, my, my aunt in Scotland sending me some beautiful material. Would you make a kilt for me? She said, yeah give it to me. So I gave it to her and, I, and then I went back to get it to pay and she wanted $80. So I said, $80? This is ridiculous. It's $800 or something. You know, this is a gorgeous kilt. And she said, look, I made, I made it. Just, just do me a favor, she said, Mr. Waddell. I said, well, what's the favor? She said, well, 25 years ago, I made a kilt for Senator Reed, whoever he was, Senator Reed. And the queen saw that kilt on a visit and she said to, she liked the kilt. So if the if the queen comes to Canada, if you meet the queen, wear the kilt. Uh, okay, okay, I'm a Scotsman, I got a cheap deal on the kilt, it's not bad. So 
so anyway, I'm in Ottawa with my old assistant, uh, Sharon Olson, brought her there because it was, it was the day the, the Queen signed the Constitutional uh, uh, thing. She signed it outside, you know, with the pen and sort of, she actually signed it, the pen broke and Jean Chrétien went, Bert, <laughs> which is French bad word, right? The only person to laugh was the Queen. She obviously understood the, 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 the Quebecois slang. Anyway, the Speaker of the House of Commons, the very elegant Jean Sauvé, uh, had a reception. And in the reception, the Queen and Prince Philip would go through and and I got invited, and I took Sharon along, and she said, well, you're going to wear the kilt. So I wore the kilt, and I wore just a, I wore a jacket like this, and a, a tartan tie, and so on. And, and I, I, my kilt. And I got to this room, the railway committee room, and it was like uh, they had a, an area where the queen could walk. The press could see from the end, where they were there, and the parliamentarians were all there. And we waited, and I stood at the end of near a group of people in it, and the Queen came, she stopped at the Prime Minister, stopped the leader opposite, and she came, she came by me, right? I'll read it, okay? Um, the Queen, with Speaker Sylvie at her side and Prince Philip slightly behind, walked in a roped-off section down the center of the room. She stopped briefly to speak to the Prime Minister, and even more briefly to speak to the leader of the opposition. The media were kept out of the room, but they could look through the open double doors. As the Queen came by, as she stopped, looked at me and said, I like your kilt. <laughs> a weak laugh escaped from me, and she frowned slightly. I said, I'm sorry, Your Majesty, you said the same thing 25 years ago. I was embarrassed, right? The Duke quipped then, has it really been 25 years? <laughs> Can I explain, I stammered. Please, the Queen said with a smile. I then briefly told her the story, how I got my kilt, and the promise I had made. The Queen listened and said, you tell her, Mrs. Donegan, that I like this kilt too. With that, the Queen was off, and Sharon and I soon left the railway committee room. Just as I turned into the corridor, I heard a voice say, Excuse me, Mr. Waddle, just a couple of questions. Scrum is the modern word for a group of journalists with their notepads, microphones, and cameras in the face of a politician who often looks like a deer in headlights. In the, <laughs> I was pretty calm, as I had nothing to spin this day and had already had a good glass of single malt scotch. I had done a few scrums in my time, but nothing prepared me for this. There must have been a hundred journalists, many foreign. I heard a woman's voice with, with a British accent, or BBC. Right? Mr. Waddle, pronounced the uh, British way for Waddell. Mr. Waddle, the Queen spent one minute with the leader of the opposition two with the Prime Minister, and three with you. What did you talk about? <laughs> Before I could reply, a Canadian reporter piped up, did you talk about Prince Andrew being sent to the Falklands? I heard a blur of questions from other reporters. Then I heard, a clearly, then I heard clearly a veteran Canadian reporter yell at me, we know you're a bit of a maverick, Mr. Waddell, this time properly pronounced. Did you mention Mrs. Thatcher in the Falklands? <laughs> when I said we talked about my kilt, most of them just shook their heads. Luckily, Sharon is tough, and she pulled me away, suggesting it was time the wee Scott had another drink, which he did. Oh, and Mrs. Donegan was pleased. Anyway, it's kind of a nice little, it's a nice little thing. Anyway, I think probably I should, I should wrap up a little bit, um, uh, and, and uh, we can maybe talk. You can ask me some questions about other. There's lots of other stuff in my book that I read. Maybe I can just, can I just, add, can I just end, end, end with this, this quote? Because when I looked over my book, 
you know, you look at your life and you look at things and what kind of moved you. And this may, I hope it, this doesn't sound corny or anything, but I'll, I'll tell you what it is, okay? Um, when we passed the Constitution, we thought, we did work together in the end. You know, uh, Canadian MPs do work together. When, and especially when we do foreign visits, we really, foreign delegations, we really stand as one as Canadians. Um, anyway, uh, so it's, it's late at night. I'll read it. We'd been debating the final draft of the Constitution. I decided I needed some fresh air. I would walk home to my tiny apartment in Sandy Hill, not far from Parliament Hill. The member's door was closed, so I had to walk down to the center foyer of the ex to exit like a tourist in the parliament buildings uh, from the main door. It happened, and this is, this is, it was a, a fierce storm going on outside. It happened that coming from the opposite direction, from the Senate side, was a small older man with a neatly trimmed mustache. I recognized e Eugene Forsey as an independent senator who was Canada's foremost constitutional expert. In his last year of the Senate, he'd be 75, I guess, 75 is the retirement, and I'd be 40, right, at the time. And uh, uh, I recognized Eugene Forsey, an independent senator who was Canada's foremost constitutional expert in his last years in the Senate. I introduced myself to him and suggested we walk together down, the Wellington, down Wellington Street to face the storm. He, he had to go to get a cab way off Parliament Hill and it was really a storm, and he's a little guy, an older man, and I was going to walk with him and shield him. I know your name, Mr. Waddell. He had a bit of a squeaky voice. The formidable senator said, as we walked, I asked him about a couple of constitutional issues that Sven Robinson and I were struggling with. He thought a moment and answered, Sir Robert. He struggled with the problem. Sir Robert, I said, who? Sir Robert Borden, he replied. He was referring to Canada's eighth prime minister, who held office from 1911 to 1920. I believe he was, when he was a young scholar, he dealt with Borden. Borden had been born before Confederation. In spite of the cold, in spite of the snow flurries around my head, in spite of the fact that I was shielding this older man from the extreme elements, I felt a warm glow. Something about being a Canadian and part of Canadian history. Thanks.